I represent a lot of clients with MS and they would, you know, work for as long as they could, but they couldn't do it anymore. And they didn't ask to be sick. You know, they would much prefer to be working, but now they can't work. And to get disability, of course, you can't work. That's part of the definition. But now they're facing a process that could take them up to two years to get to the point where they're talking to the administrative law judge. And it's a terrible dilemma because they have no income. And how are you supposed to sustain yourself? It's highly, highly stressful. Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, our guest is Sharon Christie. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. We have a host of topics to cover. You cover an area of law that in 100 plus shows we haven't really dealt with, which is social security disability. But you also have an impending presentation at the Maryland State Bar Association Summit in Ocean City. And I would be remiss if I didn't cover that as well. I do have a couple of caveats for our audience that I am required to iterate. And that is that the views that are expressed on this program are not those of Howard County Community College faculty, staff, employees, or the institution, and that it is not our intention to provide legal advice. If you have a legal situation that requires help, you need to marshal your facts and speak to an attorney specifically about your individual situation. We're happy to give guidance on this program, and that's really one of our goals. But that are, those are the caveats. And with that, let's chat a little bit about what you have done these many years and you know how you got into it in the first place, please. Absolutely. So my background's a little different. I was actually a nurse first. Then I went to law school. When I got out of law school, I worked as an associate at a big law firm doing insurance defense work. Then I went to the plaintiff side, representing people who were injured, did that for many years and was a partner in a small law firm doing that kind of work. And then we had what I call an amicable divorce. My partners and I, we are all still friends, but we had different interests and we wanted to go our different ways. And so we did. And so for the last 16 years that I was in active practice, I was a disability lawyer. I had never done that work before. I was fortunate that I had reached a point in my career where if I never took another deposition, it was going to be okay. You know, I was ready to find a different area of practice. I had an opportunity to try it out. I loved it. And so I took that opportunity to go from literally no disability clients to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds because it is a high volume type of practice. But I did that for 16 years and really loved my clients, loved the work and love being able to help people who found themselves through no fault of their own, unable to work anymore. So that's been my history as a lawyer and my history of my practice as a lawyer. And then I was able to sell that practice and I have now moved into business coaching focused on women in solo and small firm practices because that's what I did most of the time that I was, I was in active law practice. One of the things that I loved was emailing you and your email address was one, and, and I'm not going to evoke it accurately. What, what is it exactly? It's Sharon at boldwomenlawyers.com. 
I just love that. <laughs> I'm married to a bold woman lawyer, so I understand. Oh, I love that too. I love that too. Yes. And that's the name of my business coaching company is Bold Women Lawyers. So that's where that comes from. I like it very much. And uh, it's interesting because very often, and this is a, just an aside, but very often I perceive that there are stereotypes of bold women that if it were men would not be so negative or unsavory. And I don't understand that cultural phenomenon. Do you have any insight into it? I think it's been a longstanding perception of women as creatures who need to be taken care of. And the culture hasn't totally caught up to where women are now. I mean, we've been coming along, moving into the professions when there was a time when there were no women or almost no women who were lawyers, who were doctors, who were accountants, et cetera. But we have slowly been coming along, making our way into the professions, and then making our way into leadership within the professions. And there's been a lot of pushback. But over time, I see with the generation coming up now, less pushback that they receive than I received when I first started. So I, I do think over time, it will get better. But it's just part of the culture in general. And as women become more and more and more accepted in highly visible leadership positions, I think it will be, that playing field's going to be evened out. And for men, you know, they will not, I don't think have to carry the burden that they have carried for so long of, I've gotta be the breadwinner, I've gotta be the sole support. You know, that's changed too. So. I think for both men and women, there will be a happy medium that we all reach where we're all respected and we're on an even playing field. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. We had a recent show where I interviewed the president, Maryland State Bar President, Natalie McSherry. And Natalie is a formidable person and quite an impressive yes. lawyer and a wonderful person. And it's wonderful because we got into the details of this being the 125th anniversary of the State Bar Association, and that like her great, great or great grandfather was the first bar president judge in the Court of Appeals who wrote an opinion denying women the right to practice law. And the irony of such a thing, and, and of course there was, you know, it was statutory interpretation, so it wasn't as though he was opposed to women pursuing professional careers even 125 years ago, but felt constrained by interpreting the law the way the legislature had written. But it's kind of fun when it comes full circle and your great granddaughter is the head of the largest, you know, bar organization in the state of Maryland and is, you know, quite an impressive person in her own right. Exactly. And it's wonderful, you know, and I'm sure he would be very proud if he were here today to be able to see how the legal profession has progressed and she is now in that position. It really is great. And that must be why the Senate treated Katanji Jackson with such respect recently, huh? Well, we could probably do a whole show on that. Well, we could do uh, five shows <laughs> on that. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, we still have a way to go, but we will get there. We will get there. I just, I, in watching the hearings and, and listening to them, I just wondered if she had not been a woman, if they would have treated her in such a demeaning fashion. I mean, the questions they were asking her were so completely insulting to a person who's, a, you know, an incredibly formidable, impressive judge and a wonderful family person and a person of faith. And they just treated her abysmally, in my view. I mean, I agree with that. And it was all the more stunning 
when you understand that most of the people who were treating her that way had voted for her not once, but twice to be a federal first district court judge and then the uh, appeals court. And her qualifications hadn't changed one bit. Her background had not changed one bit. She was you know, just as qualified then as she is now. And, and that's where, unfortunately, I think the politics gets into it. And it really was shameful. But you, know, you see that that's what she had to endure as both a woman and a woman of color. And you do think that wouldn't have happened had she been someone else. It would have been me. I mean, it, yeah, it's, that's right. it's, just, it's a sad reality. And I, I do think the landscape has changed dramatically. I mean, my wife started practicing 40 years ago, and there were some women in her agency and stuff, but they, you know, did get kind of treated like dolls a little bit. And, you know, their opinions were not as respected, shall we say, as their male colleagues. And that in her particular government agency has changed dramatically with the general, last few general counsels have been women and the deputy general counsels have, and, and it really is a wonderful thing. Exactly, exactly. But it takes those women who are the first and the second and the third to show their abilities. That opens the door for everyone coming along behind them. And when people start to see that, oh, well, she's a woman, but she's just as capable. She has good ideas. Her interpretation of the law is really on point. That's when people's eyes start to be opened. Some people's eyes will never be opened. And, you know, I just accept that as a fact. And they won't be in, okay, so be it. But for most people, once you start to see the people who in general, you know, just women as a gender, you may have had questions about because of their gender and you'd suddenly realize she is really smart. She knows what she's doing. I agree with what she's saying, or I want to work with her. I like her style. That's when everything starts to change. So Agreed. Or, I, I'm a little intrigued. One of the things that we discuss on this show periodically are career changes because you know, we're speaking to the students at Howard Community College and their parents, and you underwent a fairly dramatic. I've met a number of nurses who became lawyers. I haven't met that many lawyers who became nurses, but I just wonder what brought about your desire to do that. What inspired that? I also know a number of nurse attorneys, and most of us, most of the ones that I know, we all started out the same as nurses. We started out either in the intensive care unit or in the emergency room, which are high powered, high intensity kinds of places, cutting edge, great fun. And, but I realized very quickly at that time, nurses were treated, even though you were treated better if you worked in those settings, you were still treated by a lot of medical professionals, doctors, like you didn't have brain cells that really could work well together. I mean, that's the best way I could describe it. And I realized that for myself, I was not going to be able to make it through a whole career, my whole working life as a nurse in that kind of environment. And so either I was going to have to stop and go to medical school or I was going to stop and go do something else. And I had always had an interest in health policy. So I thought I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to go work at some think tank or in DC in, or in some government position working on policy, health related policy. 
I got to law school and I got to trial advocacy and, you know, started doing parts of trials and thought, oh, I love this. And so that's how I switched my focus while I was in law school. But it was really the realization that at that time as a nurse, I was not going to be treated by like someone who had a lot of good sense or knowledge or the ability to actively participate and contribute to the patient's care. And I just knew that long-term that was not going to be for me. So that's what prompted me. And, I mean, uh, I'm intrigued because you, you've had a variety of sort of turns in the road that you went from nurse to law school. During law school, you kind of changed the formulation of what you thought your career would be. And then you became an insurance defense lawyer, which we've had a few insurance defense lawyers on this program in the past, because generally speaking, I'm a plaintiff's lawyer, have been for 40 years, and I have good relationships with the defense yeah. bar. But it requires a different philosophical stance, I think than being a person representing injured people, representing plaintiffs or claimants and that sort of thing. Again, can you give us a little insight into how that change came about? Oh, sure. So I started out at Whiteford. I'm familiar with them. And, you know, great people, great lawyers, and at the time, great training. I was second-tiering depositions and trials and just learning and absorbing, and it was wonderful. And yeah, I was a nurse, so I was doing some medical malpractice stuff and um, using my, my knowledge as a nurse. But I realized it was great training. You know, these are really nice, nice people, good lawyers, but my heart's not on the defense side. My heart was on the plaintiff side. And that's why, that's why I made that switch because I just realized that that's where my sympathies really were. And so I needed to jump over to the other side. And from that point forward, you know, I either represented plaintiffs who had been injured in some fashion, or then claimants in a, a disability case. Uh, so it really did, throughout my legal career, I've always brought in my background and knowledge as a nurse because I've always handled cases that involved some type of medical issues, medical records, you know, for me to read a medical record is not a big deal to understand what happened medically is not a big deal. So I've always been able to combine my background as a nurse and my work as a lawyer, which has been very, very helpful. I would imagine that enhances your efficiency. Every time I have done all manner of different plaintiff's cases, and periodically we do medical negligence or medical malpractice cases. And every time I have one, you know, it's a small bowel obstruction death case kind of thing. I have to educate myself and re-steep myself in stuff that I learned years ago, but have put away in some corner of my brain. And I would imagine it gives you a level of efficiency that you're not required to quite engage in that process. That's exactly right. And so from that point of view, it just made it much easier because I could understand at first reading of the records what happened. And I knew the body processes, I knew the medical processes that they were talking about and, or the surgeries or, you know, et cetera. So even it, the abbreviations. Correct. I know that's it sounds correct. silly, but it's, you know. It's not silly at all because I carried a lot of those abbreviations over in note-taking as a lawyer. I would rely on many of the abbreviations that I learned as a nurse. So it does make it much easier because you just don't have to keep looking up every time you turn, oh yeah, what is that? What is that small bowel obstruction? What does that mean? What part of the intestine are we talking about? I mean, you just, you know it because it's your background. 
So ultimately, your transformation led you into an area I wish I'd known you existed at the time because, you know, there are people who do Social Security disability and they're like, what happens in our firm, I've done a bunch of the cases and, and you know, it's usually somebody who's pretty catastrophically hurt and, you know, is not going back to work. And, but it would be really, you know, the people who know the more subtle nuances of it and know more about the judges or vocational people who appear at the hearings. That's invaluable knowledge. And it doesn't seem like it's such a widespread, and maybe this is the money isn't as great as some aspects of it or something. I wish I had known you existed. And it does seem like there aren't that many people who one can turn to for such cases. Is that kind of your perception or how would you describe the landscape? Yeah, I would describe it that way. There are a limited number of lawyers who are exclusively disability lawyers. And part of it is the money. You know, there's no question of that. The fees are limited by the Social Security Administration. And they're limited right now. The maximum fee, it doesn't matter how good your case is, how big a uh, retroactive payment you get for a client, your fee is going to be $6,000. That's your fee. So, I mean, it makes Maryland workers' comp look generous. Yeah, <laughs> I've had workers' comp lawyers say that to me. Yeah. And so you have to know going into it, that's the way it is. You have to be prepared to be able to generate a high volume of cases because otherwise you're not going to be able to sustain yourself. But if you structure your firm properly, you can do that because you, you don't have to do all, if I had had to do all of the work, all of the paperwork, I would have never made it, but I had a great team working with me. But the landscape for people who only do disability is limited. Then there are lawyers who handle some percent of their practice is disability work, but it's not 100%. And then there's people that occasionally have a case that comes up and they will handle it. But I think that would be the hardest thing in the world to do because the Social Security Administration is such a gigantic administrative nightmare when you're trying to work your way through it to know what you file, when you file it, who you send it to, and none of the rules of procedure that apply in civil cases in Maryland or at the federal level apply to the Social Security Administration. So it can be a bit of a quagmire trying to work your way through that. It is a mysterious process to me. I'll bet I've done 30, 40 of them across the years. So it's not an inconsequential amount, but I avoid them like the plague. And I, I'm always trying to find somebody who will do about because, I, you know, I just want my clients to get the maximum benefits they're entitled to under the law. And having me handle their security claim isn't guaranteed. You know, there's cases that are so clear cut that, you know, it's no skin off my back. And I, I'm probably not putting in for as much fee as I, well, you know, but I just want people to be taken care of. And it sounds as though that's why you got into this. That's exactly why. And you're right. There are some cases that we would sort of joke in the office and say, even the Social Security Administration is going to recognize early on that this case should be approved. But that's not true for most cases. And I would see people struggle. And you can only imagine what it's like when, as I said, through no fault of your own, you're either injured or you become sick. So, you know, for example, I represent a lot of clients with MS. 
and they would, you know, work for as long as they could, but they couldn't do it anymore. And they didn't ask to be sick. You know, they would much prefer to be working, but now they can't work. And to get disability, of course, you can't work. That's part of the definition. But now they're facing a process that could take them up to two years to get to the point where they're talking to the administrative law judge. And it's a terrible dilemma because they have no income. And how are you supposed to sustain yourself? It's highly, highly stressful. So I found it to be definitely to be the most rewarding work I ever did because so could, people could needed help. Because we've got a lot to cover in 10 minutes or yes. so. Sorry about um, that. Could yes. we run through the process, you know, sure. of looking for social security disability, Absolutely. what the roadblocks are, that kind of thing? Yeah. So it's a three-step process. You file an application. It is considered at what they Where call do you file an application? You can file it online. Okay. Or you can make an appointment and go to the local office. But I would do it online. That's so okay. much easier. So you file it online. It then goes to the next level, which is called Disability Determination Services. That's where the case is actually reviewed. They'll get medical records. And if you have a lawyer, you've got lawyers submitting records for you too. They get the records. They have doctors that work for Social Security who review them. And most of the time, they're going to say you're not disabled. There's some other job you can do. And that's literally what, what the letter Ticket taker at the movies, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they won't even specify. They'll just say, we think there's work you can do. Okay. And then you have 60 days to file your appeal. And if you miss that, that deadline without, you know, an approval for good cause, and you don't want to go down that road if you don't have to. So you got 60 days to file the appeal. Otherwise, you're back at square one. You have to start. And how do you file again. an appeal and where do you file it? Same thing. You can do it okay. online or, you know, go to the local office, but do it online. The first appeal is called a request for reconsideration. It's asking for a second opinion. The case goes through the exact same process, but with different people looking at it and reviewing it, reviewing any new medical evidence that's come in. And then you'll get a decision. And most of the time, it's a no a second time. Same rules apply then. You have 60 days to file an appeal called a request for hearing. You can file it online. And at that point, then it goes to the hearing office. And then you're put in line to get assigned to a judge and a hearing date assigned. So that's the overall process. These cases are all about you know, your medical evidence and does it prove that you meet Social Security's definition of disabled. That's the easy description. There's a lot of nuances in there, as, as you know, because you've handled these cases, but that's the process. There are further appeals if the judge says no, but that's the basic process. And it can take up to two years to get to the point where you're in front of a judge. Do you have any sense, percentage-wise, how many of these cases are approved in the first phase that you've described? I've seen statistics all over the place. What is Sharon that. Christie's anecdotal experience? My experience was 10 to 15 at the first stage, and then, you know, about 25 at the second stage. And then how about the judge hearings? I can tell you nationally, less than 50% get approved at the judge okay. hearings. I can tell you that our percentage was about 80%. That's fantastic. Well, it was, you know, part of it is, now, this is the business side. You have to carefully screen your cases. You know, if you take every case that comes along 
you're going to have abysmal statistics because the the definition of disabled is so specific. And so we were very, very clear on what our parameters were for cases that we could take because we felt like we had a reasonably good chance of winning. And that's what we would say to clients, you know, no guarantees. We think we have a reasonable chance. Let's move forward. Or I'm really sorry. I just don't feel like we have a reasonably good chance of winning. And here's why. These are the stumbling blocks I see. And then we would say, and here's the number for lawyer referral. Go get another opinion. We're giving you one law firm's opinion, but talk to other lawyers, see what they say. So again, I need to move on a little bit. I, I really appreciate your detailed exploration of this topic. We haven't gotten into it with too many people, and I do know it's important to people and their families because it, yeah. it is pretty commonplace, unfortunately. So you are talking at the State Bar Summit. Can you tell us in June in Ocean City, what will you be speaking about? I am. I'm talking about client attraction or what we lawyers call client development or origination or rainmaking, whatever you want to, you know, however you want to phrase it. Sure. And I'm talking about how to get a steady stream of great clients coming into your office. We're going to talk about both offline ways to do that and online ways to do it. Because at the end of the day, getting great clients is all about marketing. However you want to describe it, that's what it's all about. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm very excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm happy to get back in person too to the summit. Oh, absolutely. So are you a self-taught marketer? Yes, I am a self-taught marketer through years of reading, attending untold numbers of conferences, and just learning my way to figure out how do I go about doing this and how do I do it successfully? If so I were that, to yes. write a book called Sharon Christie's Three Recommendations for Attracting Wonderful Clients, do you have any chapter names for me? I do. First, you're going to know who do I want to work with? And when I say who, I mean in great detail that we're going to, that we will talk about, but who is what we call your ideal client? That's number one. What is the problem? How do they describe it to you? Not how do I describe it legally? What is it that's keeping them up at night? That's worrying them that you can help them with. And how does your work with them make their life better? And then where are they hanging out? Where do you find them? And once you get those first three steps down, then there's other steps you follow, but those are really the key. And you need to revisit it on an ongoing basis. So that's- We've seen a dramatic transformation, which I guess is obvious, but that you know, everybody used to have yellow pages ads and, and we never really had one. It's kind of word of mouth and localized, you know, people would come to us and we get some large verdicts sometimes and that would attract attention. But then internet came along and while we were not especially competent at it, we did have a, you know, a web company back in 2009 help us set up a sort of more modern website, which we have continuously put new information in and I would say that probably 50% of our clients are simply people who found us on Google because of, you know, lawyer near me or looking for particular characteristics. As I said, just as an example, had very good result in a small bowel obstruction 
personal injury case in Prince George's County, and I've written about it a few times, and those cases, people often look up their specific problem. Is your experience that the bulk of client generation these days, and I suspect this applies to things other than lawyers too, but is online, or, or what, what's your experience with that? My experience is both. I had a third of my clients would come through various online channels. A third would come from happy clients on referral from them, and a third from a professional referral, both lawyers and other professionals who worked with the people that I wanted to serve. So I was pretty evenly spread out that way, but the internet has leveled the playing field so much for lawyers. It's, it's wonderful because I, yeah, I remember the yellow pages days and the double truck ads and, you know, all of that. And that was very, very expensive for a small firm. So oh, yeah. the internet really has leveled that playing field for us, which is great. I would imagine speaking at the state bar conference is also something that would, in theory, expose you to people who would be interested in what you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love to talk. So like most lawyers, don't we all love to get up there and talk? So that's right. That's right. Well, I regret to say we have run out of time, but I very much enjoyed our conversation. And I think it's been tremendously helpful. Thank you very much, Sharon. It's been my pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed it, Bob. Thank you. This has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.